I'd like to warn you about the explicit nature of the show, but I'll just hint that you know what you're in for, making this an implicit explicit warning. It's Friday, January 29th, 2021. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Let's say you lived in Arizona and were a generally conservative person, little to the right of center, maybe moderately or a bit more than a little to the right of center, right? You probably voted for John McCain a few times in your life. You probably very much want the government to keep their hands away from, say, your opinion, the things you think. You would never want the government to tell you what to think, who to vote for. You wouldn't want them to ignore who you did vote for. And you probably wouldn't want to waste public money on frivolous court cases. Well, Arizona House Bill 2720, introduced by Representative Shauna Bollock, has something for you. Something horrible for you, in fact, all of it, is exactly the opposite of why you're a Republican in the first place. The newly elected far-right Bollock is proposing, this is according to the Arizona Republic, that leaders be allowed to override the state certification of election results and appoint presidential electors of their own choosing. Bollock, who's married to state Supreme Court Justice Clint Bollock, also proposes a variety of other bad ideas in her bill, according to the newspaper. Chief among them is a provision that judges no longer be allowed to dismiss frivolous election lawsuits. Instead, they would have to hold jury trials despite the lack of actual evidence, a full-blown jury trial. Wow, you can't see any of these ideas that the state legislature just gets to vote for whoever they want to for president. You can't see that getting screwed up, can you, Representative Bollock? Or what is that English phrase? Oh yeah, Bollocked up. Talk about an overcorrection. One election goes wrong. Let's tweak the rules to exactly fit the last election without any foresight that, oh my God, this could blow up in our faces in a state where the last two elections for Senate went to the Democrats. Arizona's not trending red. There's only a slim majority for Republicans in the state legislature. This is a stupid, undemocratic, unwise, and just poorly thought out bill. The old Republicans, you know, the non-crazy ones, they weren't nice or kind or committed to allowing Democrats the full franchise, but they were at least smart. They would say, you know, you shouldn't you have an ID to vote? I mean, you can't write a check in the supermarket without an ID. How could you not have one to vote? And most people, most, you know, independents or people who don't pay that much attention to politics say, yeah, I guess there's a certain logic to that. And it took a little time. It took a little time for Democrats or other people who are interested in democracy to explain, well, that has the practical effect, actually, of disenfranchising a lot of people. This new bill just says, hey, let's disenfranchise a lot of people. Now, when I mentioned McCain up top, what's the McCain part? Well, the Arizona Republican Party voted to formally censure Cindy McCain. Sure, they also voted to censure their own Republican governor, Doug Ducey, but it was the McCain part that really offended me. Not that I care about the McCain political dynasty or really have a lot of sympathy or am deluded into thinking that, you know, they're not very political people with their own agendas. But really, what Cindy McCain did, why she broke with Donald Trump, was really deep down because she was a wife who was standing up for her husband. She wasn't playing the angles, right? She wasn't trying to raise money off of this. She was saying, my God, what he said to my husband and the memory of my husband was so horrible, I can't stand by this man. It was 
as human an instinct as there is, and a laudable one. And what does the Arizona Republican Party do? Well, with that, with this bill, they stake their claim to being Trumpist through and through. They say Arizona is a bellwether state. I hope not. And regular, non-stupid, non-Trumpy Republicans, you'd better hope not too. On the show today, in the spiel, I say, bring back the crackpot. There is context around that. But first, it's why you hear me, and maybe to some extent why you listen. Its nuances are really underappreciated, understudied even. It is, of course, the voice. The range of what a voice conveys and the means of how a voice conveys it are fascinating topics. But there hasn't really been a big examination, a popular examination of the voice until now. The name of the book is This Is The Voice, and it gets into the science and the study and the sonorous power of the voice. Its author, John Colapinto, is up next. They say that radio is the most intimate of mediums. And that's because that kind of radio, Linda Wertheimer, joining you from the wilds of the Calabasas Cavern, is intimate. But then what about Rush Limbaugh? Who will tell you, friends, what you're seeing now? You hear that? That's a little W.C. Fields maybe mixed with Rush, but there's a bombast in it. And then when you think about the sounds and the words, certain sounds just connote calm, like the silence of a Sunday and how easy you're feeling inside. You're an easygoer on the inside or a Sunday silence on the outside. Unless... On the outside, it's Sunday silence. Easygoer with Pat Day. Back to challenge. Heads apart. Easygoer on the inside with a slight lead. On the outside, Sunday silence. The rest of them far back. Here's the finish of the Preakness. Sunday silence and easygoer. Photo finish. Well, you know what was common among all those observations? The voice. Can you tell that I'm obsessed with the voice and perhaps you're obsessed or at least uh, you're at least placating of my vocal qualities, excesses, maybe even, I hope you think, curly cues of interest? There's a new book called This is the Voice by John Colapinto, which is just an excellent linguistic structure of vocal cords, philosophical examination of one of the most important parts of human interaction that often goes unexamined. John, welcome to The Gist. Thank you so much. People during this interview will hear your voice and notice, oh, it's a little raspy. In fact, that's where the book starts. How'd you get your rasp? Yeah, 20 years ago, I was invited by my then boss, Jan Wenner, who's the owner and editor of Rolling Stone magazine, to join a rock band that he was putting together from the magazine staff. And uh, we were going to play this Christmas gig. 2,000 people. We had to do a lot of rehearsals. I'd been singing most of my life, just kind of casually. I mean, in college, I sang in coffee houses and stuff and school choirs, um, but I had never learned how to do a proper voice warm up. I just didn't know what that was all about or why you'd bother. I learned pretty quick because I was shouting over, uh, I guess you'd call it singing, over Yawn and Company's cranked up guitars. And I blew out my voice majorly. I mean, I'd had laryngitis in the past, I'd had hoarseness. This 
proved to be something quite, quite different. If I were talking to you and we were listening to your voice, how would it sound if you had never gone through with that uh, benefit gig with fronting the Jan Winter Band? Yeah, it's funny. I mean, I, I had kind of a smooth baritone voice that was pretty elastic and fairly melodic, like fairly... Uh, you know, up and down in its in its pitch range. I mean, because I was kind of an expressive, perhaps extroverted talker. I still am that, but my voice is more monotonic now because of the injury. So really, this was like a, you were involved, you got hit by a truck or you fell down an elevator shaft and you forever have a limp. There is a forever physical manifestation of one huge incident gone wrong. Totally. I mean, I am in effect disabled, which you don't think of. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. And you don't think of it with a voice injury. People don't think about it. They figure, hey, listen, I'm getting the words out. People are understanding me good enough. I can make the sales pitch, whatever it is that you do for a living. You know, if you're a doctor, you know, you can do the diagnosis. But the problem is in this voice specialist that I ended up writing about in the New Yorker, a guy named Stephen Zytels, who operated on Adele and removed her vocal mass. They're called polyps. She had the same thing as me. He explained to me, man, you, you know, singing, okay, you can't sing anymore, but your real problem is you're not talking properly and you are not putting you across properly because you're laying back in situations where there's a lot of noise. You're speaking in a more monotonic pitch range where there's less enthusiasm, less emotion in your voice. I mean, he blew my mind by saying to me, you are no longer you. Now we know that voices are like an oral a-U-R-A-L, fingerprint. We know they're a sonic signature that's unique to us, but we don't really realize the import of that until we go ahead and damage our voice and change what it is we're projecting into the world. So that blew my mind and that got me thinking about the book eventually. One of the more fascinating experiments you cited was a researcher who just taped the vocalizations, the words said by doctors as they talked to patients. And this researcher was able to predict to 100% accuracy which doctors would be sued and which wouldn't. It's absolutely amazing. Absolutely. And it's very interesting how she filtered out the words. So these doctors were not being sued because they were saying insensitive things or being incurious. What, you know, she removed, you can actually keep just the melody of the voice by removing the higher part of our vocal range. We don't realize that we speak in a musical chord. Picture someone on the piano hitting like all 10 fingers are hitting harmonizing notes. Well, those notes in the bass are the ones that would penetrate through a wall, let's say. And we can hear neighbors having an argument. We can't hear what they're saying. We just know they're having a fight. Or we might know that they're getting close to getting lovey-dovey. Whatever, we can hear the emotion because the wall filters out the higher notes in that big chord that is the voice. So this woman, she took a, forget what the heck the name of the filter is, but she filtered out those high things. You could just hear the emotional tone and the warmth or lack of it in these doctors' voices. And what she discovered was those doctors that had voices that were kind of overly assertive, kind of dominant, kind of a little monotonic, kind of deep, she discovered that those guys got sued like off the ground. They got a lot of lawsuits against them. The other guys who spoke in sort of a more mellifluous, maybe a slightly higher pitch, a kind of nicer way of talking, they didn't get sued at all, even if they had like records of 
like maltreating patients and doing, you know, bad, stupid operations and stuff. It had nothing to do with their competence as doctors. It had everything to do with literally their vocal tone and timbre, which is another word people use um, for voice. Um, and yeah, I mean, so what this tells us is that a tremendous amount of, of what we're putting across in the way of likability, believability, trustworthiness, uh, sexual attractiveness is not in the words. It's literally in this musical sound that we're making. And in terms of sexual attractiveness, as you get into, I was surprised to learn contra what Jordan Peterson Oh, hello, Canadian reference. Contra <laughs> what Jordan Peterson might have us believe, the deep-throated, baritone, manly voice is not, in fact, the most attractive to women, except maybe when they're ovulating. There's this interesting phenomenon of women preferring male facial features that are a little more feminine, and in fact, male voices that are a little more feminine. It's just that when men do battle with men, even vocally, even say when they're trying to one-up each other in locker room talk, they go basso profundo. And it's this interesting tension where it's not to maximize reproduction or sexual attractiveness that we think that a deep voice is uh, preferable to woman to women. It's basically to do battle with men. That's right. And I mean, women's reaction to voices is interesting because they, they like a voice lower than their own because we wouldn't really have evolved that way. We're an interesting species in that we're the only animal, think about it, that has a voice that is sexually dimorphic, meaning we sound, men that is, sound different than women because our voices are about an octave lower. We, we have this amazing difference in pitch. And we also have a difference in in timbre, like in the sort of resonance of, of the male voice because we've got a larger chest cavity, larger neck on average, even bigger heads. These are all resonance chambers, like a violin versus a big acoustic bass. So men's voices tend to boom more as well as being lower. Women developed uh, an attraction to that, um, but they don't want it to be too low. It's interesting the way it evolved. Women kind of understood that men that had low voices had been quite sort of juiced up with some testosterone. That's what makes the vocal cords grow big in a man at puberty. But if the, the voice is too low, something in her mind is telling her he's over-testosteronized. He's going to look for other females. He's going to leave me when we have our baby. The, all of these alerts are kind of wound into the DNA around this whole notion of what that, that voice is sounding like to a woman's ears. You get into vocal fry and you get into um, many of the vocal qualities that have come up for debate lately. But I don't think I saw in your book, unless I skipped it. Did you ever see that 30 Rock episode with sexy baby voice? Oh, it, oh boy, it's coming back to me. Uh, yes, I think I did, as a matter of fact. Right. So the idea is Tina Fey, who is an older, you know, she plays Liz Lemon, but in the show, she's the authority figure. And she takes great issue with a younger woman who she thinks has put on this new trend of voices, which is the sexy baby voice. Oh, if only I had remembered it when I was writing the book. Oh, so good. Because it does, it does highlight a couple of the things that you talk about. 
Yes. Oh, very much so. I would also lump in there something else I didn't mention, which is this thing that people deride on the internet. I think correctly, indie voice in in female singers now, young sort of millennial aged female singers who are singing in sort of a, a revised Cupid doll, sexy babyish voice. You know, it ain't exactly Janis Joplin. You know, it's not. It's not putting it out. It, it's kind of got this vulnerability thing, which you know it has its appeal. But too, too much of it. I guess, you know, anything that we get too much of drives you crazy. The Liz Lemon thing is just hilarious, though, to think of a woman, because she's middle-aged in that show, for her to feel, you know, threatened and annoyed by someone that is gaining all sorts of, you know, professional and social power through speaking in this more babyish way. It's just a lovely social observation. Very, very real to the voice. Time and time again, it struck me that, Vocal quality was one of the last things that even academic people thought to rigorously study. So you have Noam Chomsky, who has, you know, a great impact on the field and is one of the fathers of the field. But when you really look at the amount of studying he did, he didn't. He just kind of went by, oh, yeah, this is how I assume that pe- that language is learned, that no one really enunciates different words. But it's not just that. It's There are so many instances where there is a thinking about about the voice and then someone gets interested in it and realizes no one has actually rigorously studied this in a way I'm going to suggest that if it were sight or if it were something to do with hearing, not just speaking, there would be a lot more rigorous study. And I was wondering if this fits in with your theory of the voice being taken for granted and far more important than we even realize. Oh, I mean, so totally. It was one of the sort of terrifying things about embarking on the book when I suddenly realized, oh, wait, I'm not going to find a single authority that's gotten its hands around this subject. There is a terrifying paucity of research on the voice as voice. So Chomsky studied language. He's a linguist. And his major theory was that language is inborn. It's already in our brains. It it emerges through just the most casual contact with overheard speech from parents that's very blurry. But more than that, and critically, he believed, astonishingly, that language in our species started as thought, silent thought. So in other words, he thought language was a purely or almost purely mental phenomenon of interest only in terms of what's going on up in the higher cortex of the brain. This left rather in the shadows the means by which are the default means by which we move language from head to head. I'm beaming my thoughts into your brain by making the air vibrate in special ways. If that isn't interesting, if that isn't a critically important thing for our species to look at, because it's after all what got us to the top of the food chain. I mean, I would argue it's our most important faculty. Language sequestered in the brain that can't get out through a channel of communication that is so effective. We can do this when we're doing something with our hands, when we're walking, we can do it in the dark, we can whisper, we can yell. I mean, this subject and I'm really getting passionate now, it's been complete, I would I would argue almost completely overlooked. I mean, we're a fairly amazing species, but mostly because we can get all these thoughts in our head vibrating in the air and get them into someone else's head. Anyone listening to this is going to say, oh yeah, right. I'm sure there's like lots of other books on it. If you find them, let me know. 
<laughs> you were looking. Yeah, yeah exactly. You decided them. Oh, yeah. No, I realized I was in yeah. deep shit. I mean, just to you know, not to put too fine a point on it, I was like, I had signed a book deal and I was like, okay, now let's get down to figuring out who the experts are. And I was like, what? You know, there aren't any. I mean, there'll be an expert in singing, an expert in accents, an expert in this or that. So my book is an attempt to synthesize, you know, a tremendous number of specialties. I think in the introduction, you mentioned philosophical musings in the book, which I was really pleased to hear you say, because this grades all the way from the science and biology of how we speak, the neuroscience of how we put ideas together and get them out. But it it then grades into the, the sort of philosophy of who and what we are. I mean, the voice really connects to all of that. The name of the book is This is the Voice. The author of the book is John Colapinto, who is also the author of As Nature Made Him and the novel about the author, recursively enough. (laughs) Thanks so much, John. Thank you. What a pleasure. And now, not the spiel. It's just this note. So... We find that a lot of people listen to the gist on Friday and may have missed a good segment from earlier in the week. So on Fridays, I'm going to recommend a segment, the segment of the week. So if I had to recommend one this week, and I don't have to, but I want to. How about Monday's show? Larry King was mentioned at the top of the show. This is the Larry King show. Very nice. We get crazy calls. Hello. Many people enjoyed it. If you miss it, I recommend it to you. Yakima, Washington. Hello. Hello. Hello, Harry. Larry. And now the spiel. I say bring back the crackpot. What? You respond? Bring back the crackpot. The country's overrun by crackpots. Our crockery is conclusively crazed. I mean, as an institution, bring back the crackpot. The crackpot as crackpot, not what the crackpot has become, which is one of the most potent political constituencies in America. Crackpots, wingnuts, gadflies, dingbats, screwballs, wackadoos, fruitcakes, and the almost nurturing-sounding bit of an odd duck. I love them all, or at least used to be able to accept them and know what to do with them. It was easy to have a lot of exposure to them because America specialized in them. They weren't always benign, but they were mostly benign. And their malignancy wasn't made manifest in the collection of them. If you got four gadflies together, they didn't get exponentially more dangerous than one lone gadfly. In fact, they probably even wouldn't talk to each other. There was a time when that was true. I mean, if there was a danger, the danger was that one might become a lone wolf and actually pair his words with actions in a way that was usually surprising to most people. Now, I want to be clear what I'm not talking about. I'm not talking about dismissing extremist hate speech or ignoring sentiments that fall within a violent tradition. I am talking about encountering preposterous ideas that are clearly unmoored from reality and being able to say, huh, that guy's a crackpot and leave it at that. And not having to spend time considering techniques to neutralize him electorally or to deplatform him as the word goes in media. There was a time when Art Bell hosted an overnight show where listeners would call in with tales from Area 51 or other unexplained phenomena. The story about the digging of the hole and the hearing of the sounds from hell is very real. It did occur in Siberia. That was entertainment. 
Uh, sure, Bell was, maybe he was in character. He probably believed a lot of it. I've read interviews with him. He said he did. But he also knew that it was shtick and his meal ticket. There wasn't really a problem with any of this. It was one step away from Elvira, mistress of the night. It was fun, or it was like claiming to believe in the boogeyman and campfire stories that scare your friends. Sound recordings from other dimensions. Yeah. But now, this stuff, the equivalent today is one step away from thoughts that have not just entertained or entranced, but have begun to infect the minds of many people in America, many voters, in fact, a significant portion of one of our two political parties. The modern Art Bell can be found on YouTube or in podcasts, tales of the weird, tales of the unexplained, conspiracy theories, but also weaponizable notions that have to be examined in a way that Art Bell never was. So here's a podcast called Down the Rabbit Hole. Not the New York Times rabbit hole, but an effort by NWCZ Radio. It seems to be a website based out of Tacoma. It plays an eclectic mix of shows. And one of them is this Down the Rabbit Hole. Here's the latest episode. It's very Art Bell-esque. Spooky UFOs. Sometimes the light would move behind the trees and disappear only to reappear moments later. Eventually, the couple grew so curious they decided to pull over and investigate. Through a pair of binoculars, Betty realized that the light was not a satellite and was actually some sort of object spinning in the air, presumably a flying saucer. Barney also grew concerned. As a pragmatic intellectual man, he was skeptical of any extraterrestrial explanation, but he had no alternative guess as to what the light could be. It couldn't be a reflection or his imagination or a balloon, which is obviously why they're telling this story 50 years later. Oh, yeah, you didn't realize that this is a story from the 1960s. And if you didn't realize that, here's a clue. Betty started having dreams or what they call nightmares. Uh, they, some people say dreams, some people say nightmares. One of the way, one, one of the two. And in these dreams, she sees aliens. Um, she's taken onto an alien ship. She sees some different things with the, on the ship. They de- describe the aliens as gray with big purple lips and huge noses, kind of like Jimmy Durante. And then I started a levitating Betty, and I said I want to do a probe. And guess what kind of probe? Indutukis? I don't actually know if Jimmy Durante used Yiddish, but let's go with it. I I do very timely impressions, don't I? But the point of this show, The Rabbit Hole, is it's about, you know, UFOs and D.B. Cooper, but it's also about this craziness. Mostly we're going to dial in to adrenochrome and frazzle drip. And the Wayfair thing is a lot like Pizzagate, where it was very quickly that people... Completely debunked amazing. Debunked and, yeah, but there's no... It's There's no explanation. Yeah, it's debunked, but it's not. It, it leaves, still leaves a lot of questions. They yeah. say it's debunked, but it's like, oh, well, Wayfair says, right? Cool. Yeah, well, I'm sure you know. Epstein and again, a lot it's of a lot of too. it's a lot of the web washing. Yeah, and we we run into this all the time with with yes. our research. Their research is reading a QAnon inspired story about Adrenochrome, which is I don't want to I don't want to play too many in depth clips of them getting into it. It's an idea that if you kill people and drink their blood, you'll get some sort of amazing high. And then there's this idea called frazzle drip or a story. I mentioned the word frazzle drip yesterday as a theory that Marjorie Taylor Greene at least agreed with on her Facebook page. It is about Hillary Clinton killing children and wearing their skin. Yeah, this is different from Art Bell. This is different from, 
you know, a sound recording from Siberia. There is a cruelty and meanness to the frazzled drippery. It doesn't exist with tales of UFOs and the unexplained. In this version of conspiracy theory, real people are named and denigrated. So maybe you could argue that's the difference and that's what puts it in a category of maybe something that should be looked at and worried about and regulated. It's a little different from Bigfoot. But what really puts it in the different category is that the purveyors of it knowingly want to organize masses of people around it, and they do. And adherence to the belief sometimes now get elected and no one stops them. And they get committee assignments and no one worries that this is the stuff they believe in. We know to make fun of Bigfoot believers, but QAnon believers, that's something to be massaged through messaging by Kevin McCarthy for the base. And while it's entirely unacceptable for Congress, Congress we're talking about, to welcome frazzled drippers, I'm more thinking of everyone outside of Congress. I mean, that is the minimum. You should not give Marjorie Taylor Greene a committee assignment. But, you know, I do wonder if Art Bell were on now, should we think about petitioning stations to take them off the air? I mean, that strikes me as a bad place to be, but maybe it's where we are. I don't think it is, but there is a case to be made that this sort of content, the embrace of the supernatural, that which once seemed harmless, today might just be entree into a very dangerous world. I mean, take this incident from 12 years ago. Chris Matthews hosting Hardball mentioned a write-in vote in the disputed Minnesota Senate election between Norm Coleman and Al Franken. Let's take a look at the next one, guys. This has got uh, Franken clearly filled in. I mean, he's clearly filled in. And then they write in under write-in lizard people lizard people. And by the way, if we were wondering about the sincerity of the lizard people voting block in Minnesota, the public radio station there set us straight. They actually found the guy who wrote in lizard people, a guy named Lucas Davenport. Lizard people refers to the conspiracy theory that there's a race of shape-shifting lizards masquerading as humans who rule the world. But Davenport doesn't consider himself a believer. But there are people who do. In fact, remember the Christmas Day bomber in Nashville? A bizarre new twist in the Nashville Christmas Day explosion. Investigators are now exploring several conspiracy theories as potential motives, including evidence the bomber believed in lizard people and a so-called reptilian conspiracy. Now, the headline on that NBC story was QAnon's Capital Rioters. The Nashville bombers lizard people theory is deadly serious. Subhead bonkers, sure. Harmless, definitely not. And that's where we are. There's no space for crackpots. We need to decide. We need to, I suppose, make a call, a judgment call on every crazy theory. Is it benign or is it harmful? And by the way, if the lizard people is a non-harmless theory, then what else can we describe as harmless? Not much. The costs of getting it wrong are higher than I ever expected. You know what? Let's acknowledge this, that this is an impossible task. This will overwhelm us. It will be impossible to guard against the potential for harm, to sort the harmful from the millions of examples of that which truly is harmless. A few years ago, we might find this all funny, and I can't say we were wrong. I can't say that the world showed us the errors of our way, but the world sure showed us something. Man, I long for crackpots as crackpots. When we found out about a crackpot, it lodged itself in the humor-sensing centers of our brain and not the threat-sensing centers. 
But we're a long way from that. In fact, we might even be closer to a situation where expecting that one of our two political parties will militate against the incursion of Q, maybe trusting that makes me the crazy one. And that's it for today's show. Shana Roth, GIST producer, has a recording of a pit from hell in Siberia. Hold on, I shall now play those harrowing sounds. Margaret Kelly was working on a resolution that censures Meghan McCain only to discover that it was secretly funded by Big Whoopi. Should we be questioning her if that's who she wants to be? Alicia Montgomery, executive producer of Slate Podcast, has a deep, rich baritone that made her the voice of the Chrysler Cordoba for many years. And what I need from an automobile, I know I get from this new Cordoba. It's good to hear, Alicia. The gist. Love my Durante? Well, subscribe to Slate Plus, a feed of Mike Does impressions from 80 years ago. You'll thrill to my pinky Lee. Oom um, peru de peru du peru, and thanks for listening. <laughs>